Hi, I'm Michelle Sawatsky Coop, and welcome to our Mental Health for Performance podcast, brought to you by Pinnacle, your recruitment firm that has been proudly on the job for the past 20 years. You know, one of our main aims in this podcast is to create human-first, brave spaces in order to reach our best performances in our workplace and, well, in our lives in general. Gloria Beleg is going to help us do exactly that. She is our guest. She is from Spain and is a clinical associate professor emerita in psychology at the University of Illinois at Chicago. She is back living in Spain now, in retirement, after a lifetime of work in the USA. Gloria worked as sports psychologist for the Chicago Bears from 2015 to 2020. She has worked extensively with USA Track and Field, USA Gymnastics, and USA Field Hockey. She was at the 1992 and 1996 Olympics as a sports psychologist, and the list goes on and on for her. She has been in the field of mental health for performance for decades, from the trenches. She has lived what she speaks, and mostly in a man's world. When I reached Gloria and had the incredible opportunity to grab an hour or so of her time, she was literally in the world she knows best, Spain. And I thanked her for joining me and welcomed her to the podcast. You're very welcome. And I'm really, I guess I'm very thankful that I'm in Spain right now and not in the midst of that blizzard. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, much better. I was thinking I should have done this interview on location, but (laughs) we don't quite have the budget for that yet. That might come someday and we'll have to do this again. So a guest from Spain, my goodness, you know, the, the connections, of course, with Dr. Adrian Leslie Toogood and the sports psychology world has afforded us this this wonderful pleasure. And Gloria, you're retired right now, correct? I am. I mean, I guess I'm not fully retired. <laughs> it's very hard to do that. Um, and so I'm still consulting with some people in the States, you know, uh, thanks to Zoom. And uh, and then I've, you know, uh, I started consulting with the national, I guess it's called artistic swimming now, not synchronized swimming uh, team in Spain. Incredible. I think too, like sort of what you all bring to the table and, and the fact that you can consult. I mean, I, I figure you'll, this will be a lifetime for you, won't it? You know, it's something I love to do. So, so I think like, why would I want to stop? Exactly. Well, we are really, we're looking forward to sort of jumping into the experience you've had and the lifetime that you have led in this field um, to help us even pass it on to others, but also to put it into our own lives and to pass it on to those that we work with as well. So, okay, well, Gloria, let's let's go back to the beginning. Now, you, Spain is home home for you, correct? Yes, Barcelona, yes. So yes. you grew up in Barcelona. Um, and, and where did it start? Were you, were you a sporty kid? Did you start in sports? Was that a big um, thing with your family? I, I guess it started with my dad. He was a sports medicine physician who actually was one of the pioneers in Spain of sports medicine. And I am one of uh, five siblings. And um, um, my dad had a rule that everybody had to do sports. He didn't care how good you were. You just had to do them. And um, and so I, always, I was always uh, in sport. And I happened to love it. I mean, I wasn't great. But I, I did many, um, and I did. Um, I, I swam. I played basketball. I played uh, tennis. Um, I delved into skydiving. <laughs> I did lots of things. Now, when you were in sport, and, and you said you loved it, uh, so how did that translate into the whole side of the mental side of things for you? Early on, were you a thinker? Were you into that side of sport? 
not so much into that side of sports, but into the thinking part, yes. And my dad was a, a, a physician, but um, he was uh, a very exuberant man who, if uh, I felt he, would, he could easily plan my whole life. Um, and I had considered going into medical field, into medicine, and I thought, no, I got to take some distance from, from my dad. Um, and, and so I went into psychology, which was a very new field at that time in Spain. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so um, I loved it. That, uh, I realized, okay, that, that, that is for me. I like that. And I, I didn't think initially that I was going to do sports psychology, mainly because psychology was so new. Sports psychology was not even in the radar. Um, but... And I think this is an issue that I always want to bring up. There is always the role of luck in what we do in our lives. Mm-hmm. And sometimes this is underappreciated. Um, we just happened, of course, my dad being sports medicine, we happened to know a number of physicians who were at the Olympic Training Center, which was a very small center at that point in Spain. Um, and one of the doctors had a friend, a, a, a relative who was a psychologist and brought him in and he would, you know, do uh, group stuff and then brought some, bought some machines for uh, speed reaction time. And since he was the only psychologist we know, um, I asked, could I go track, shadow him? And so I did. And since I also happened to love sports and I understood things, I just, kind of stayed there. Eventually, I took that position in an official manner, but I started as a second year undergraduate. So as you moved, so that's sort of how sports psychology came to be and came to be an interest of yours. And so was it him who sort of grabbed you and said, do this? I, I mean, the, the issue is that I really love sports and and the idea, I mean, I had to do a lot of work in psychology and other things, not sports, part of the training But one of the things that I have always found from the very beginning, very attractive about sports psychology is that you are helping people go from good or okay to to great, to excellent. And and it's so different than working consistently with people who have great difficulties, who have a lot of trouble, who want the troubles to go away, but don't necessarily want to do the work to (laughs) make them go away. Um, and so I found the working with athletes who wanted more, who wanted to do more, uh, something that gave me energy. Yeah. What were the challenges of that, though? It was so early in the whole like sports psychology thing, as you said, and there would be a lot of people. And I mean, even when I played sports in the 80s, you know, there was a lot of coaches that said that is that's not part of this. We're just going to train harder than everybody else. And that'll make us the best. Uh, what were the challenges there and, and how did you overcome some of those? Um, the challenges, I think, were one, I was very alone, and and I did not like that, mm-hmm. um, and, and really lack of information. Uh, I, I, at least I was very aware that I didn't know enough, and, and it was something that I found um, uh, at times anxiety-provoking, and, and I made some major <laughs> mistakes. Uh, I, for example, I, I was interested in relaxation training, and um, and so I there was a swimmer in in the training center who was very very good, but would get very anxious. So I worked with him and taught him relaxation training, made him you know uh, at that time a cape. I neglected to tell him not to listen to it right before his race. He was a sprinter, 
They didn't have to rescue him because he floated really well, but he was dead last and came out of the pool and said, but I was very relaxed. And I thought, I thought the coach was going to kill me. <laughs> I, I mean, I never thought of saying, please don't do it right before. But I did learn that right then and there, never again. Isn't it amazing? But even you said you were always willing to say, I don't know it all. And, and how key is that? And, and how prevalent should that be in those who maybe want to follow in your footsteps and do what you did? And, and I think that that is very important. The other piece that I learned early and has been, I think, very helpful to me was that, and it goes with the question you asked first, uh, which is, um, you know, some of the coaches didn't want that, but I was at the Olympic Training Center. And so I worked with the coaches who wanted me there. And so I would go to watch practice and I would stand next to them and we would talk and we they would ask me things that I had no idea how to do, but clearly neither did the coach. For example, how do we change the lead leg of a hurdler? And uh, I thought, I have no idea, but well, let's talk about it, look at it, and kind of figure it out. But I would go first saying, well, I really don't know. But since the coach said, well, me neither, so let's figure it out. And I understood also that I had to follow the coach, that the authority, I couldn't go there saying, oh, you're doing this wrong. Even if a coach was yelling, I would sometimes, you know, learn to say, um, I observe some things, uh, if you want me to tell you, let me know. Because I thought I, he's the authority there or she's the authority there. I cannot go in there saying, and, and I've seen people make that mistake to go there and say, I'm going to tell you how you should do this. And I think that's the kiss of death. Yeah. Yeah. Tell me the story of how you became a sports psychologist. That's all good. But then working with the U.S. track and field team, I mean, that is the highest level really, and, and the highest pressure, you know, what was your journey to that? You, I mean, I'm thinking you wouldn't have just plopped into the, you know, this international uh, environment, or maybe you did. <laughs> Almost. <laughs> and because I was, I was very aware of being alone and, and it was hard to get some books. I mean, I, I have to say I Xeroxed more than one because I couldn't buy them in Spain at that time. And so what I did is anytime there was an international conference, I would try to go. And so um, I met uh, Bruce Ogilvy uh, at a conference. And, you know, I, I, I'll go and I'll ask questions and I'll talk. Um, and, and I met a, a number of, of other um, sports psychologists, Bob Neidefer. Uh, and then when I was already in the States, living in the States as a finishing my, my doctorate, but I wasn't finished yet. Uh, there was a conference in Washington, D.C., a sports psychology conference. I, it had been a few years since I had really done much because I was doing my clinical Ph.D. And, uh, but I went uh, to that conference and there was a case discussion. I sat there and the case assigned to my table was a hurdler. Okay. I knew a lot about hurdles because of the coach I worked with in Spain. And in the table that I sat, there was the, the director of sports medicine for USA track and field. At the end, again, luck. Yes. It followed me throughout my life. And he, he said, you know, who are you? Why do you know so much about hurdles? Where are you coming from? <laughs> and are you a, a, also a clinician? I, I said, yes and yes. And that was... Um, 
before the 92 Olympics, two years or so before, actually it was already three years before. And, uh, and so I, I think they thought, oh, what? wait, let's see. So I, I actually had like, a, a, in, three years later, I, I was with the Olympic team in Barcelona. Wow. So really, I mean, that catapulted you right in there. What do you think it was that you said around that table or were there certain words or phrases you used that caught his attention or, you know, do you remember back to sort of how, what you delivered? I, I remember that I knew about hurdling. I knew the importance of rhythm. I knew uh, the, you know, uh, how, you know, it wasn't just visual. Sometimes most hurdlers can sing the pace of the, and, I, I'm sure that I talked about some of these things, but I also um, knew the psychology part more. And, and I think, I don't think there were many other psychologists in that table who knew about hurdles. So you stood out that way for sure. Now, are there some, like when I've worked with sports psychologists as an athlete and then as a coach and have listened to so many and, and, you know, been, been blessed to have, you know, been involved in panels or discussions where, Lots of people say certain things. Do you have some things that you love? Like, I know, I mean, one phrase, an example would be, you know, only think about what you can control, right? Don't, you know, don't go beyond what you can control. Are there some things that, that are really staples for you that you hang on to that would work for any sport and any athlete really at any time? For me, it's, it's the idea that I, I have to meet them where they are. I may think it would be great if we could get this person to do whatever, this visualization or this other thing, but that's what I would do. And that may not be where they are. And, and so I need to listen to where they are and work with what I can, not what I would like to, what I can. And, and I think that's something that I've always kept and, 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 and it, it's helped me understand like, okay, yeah, he, this person could get there. And they are here right now, so I gotta start here. My, my, I cannot want it more than they do, and and I cannot have my eyes on a goal that's different from theirs. Yeah, meet them where they are. That's that sounds to me like that's a recipe for success. No matter what what athlete you work with. Now, are you okay. most comfortable in track and field, or would you take on anything? I mean, you're with synchron uh, artistic swimmers now, so. Uh -huh. and, and I've actually worked several years uh, with uh, rhythmic gymnastics. Actually, to Atlanta, I went with rhythmic. And then I, I came back to rhythmics after I had said I wouldn't uh, uh, this past uh, five years. Uh, so because uh, a, a gymnast who was a gymnast when, uh, when I was working with them in 94, 95, 96, um, she was now the head of uh, rhythmics for USA Gymnastics. And she, first thing I think she did was call me and said, we need to change the culture. Um, so, uh, and at that time I had just started with the Chicago Bears. Right. And I said, I, I'm too busy. I don't think I can do it. And she never skipped a bit. She said, that's fine. Give us whatever time you have. And that was the end of the conversation. <laughs> like, uh, I mean, I thought I said no. And, but looks like I'm here. But I love rhythmics. Um, when I went to the NFL, I was very aware that that, that was very different. Not just, not just the sport itself, uh, but the structure of professional sport. And that was a field where I, I, I came in with like, okay, I'm going to watch a lot here. Um, and uh, probably not enough.
Yeah. So I, I want to get into that whole, your whole walk through and, and getting into the NFL and all of that. But what's striking me right now, and I can't let this go is, so you're working with rhythmic or gymnastics and football. And Could it be any more different? And, you know, was there one more challenging than the, how in the world would, did, did you get your head around such different sports and such different approaches? You know, the, the main difference is actually the age. Oh, it's not so much the sport, it's the age. They are young girls, and those are, you know, uh, the youngest of the, of the men are in their 20s, and, and some of them go to their mid-30s. Um, and, and I think that that was one of the main differences. Um, the sport then, the, it's kind of the same struggles. Um, the, the perfectionism, the lack of confidence, the fear of letting people down, uh, people that matter, or um, the, the extreme self-criticalness uh, that goes with the perfectionism, but not always. But uh, those things, I mean, I thought I saw them at, at both ends. But yeah, sometimes I thought about the girls and I thought about them and like, whoa, that is different. Just the sheer size of them as athletes. Absolutely. No. And, and the numbers and the numbers. I mean, training camp is like a uh, hundred players. So. Yeah. Before we leave the gymnastics uh, topic, I think there's a lot of concern, you know, now with, with so you, spoke, you spoke of age with our young athletes and, oh, after COVID and the pandemic and what they've missed and, and all of this and, and, and gymnastics in general often is a hot button, you know, with, with uh, safety and sport and, you know, having safe sport and those that lead the way and all of that. And, and what did you encounter, Gloria, and how did you work with these young women um, in, in trying to keep it safe and, and get them to their peak performance in a, in a really demanding world at such a young age? Um, I actually, and that is one of the reasons why after 96, I said never again, um, because at some points I thought, I wonder if I'm helping them adjust to something they shouldn't adjust. And, uh, and I actually, I remember at one point having a meeting with uh, the, the group of national gym, team gymnasts and um, asking them, uh, because I thought the coach was just um, abusive. And, uh, and I said, you know, I don't think this is right. And, uh, and what do you girls want to do? And they talk it and they said, you know, yeah, we know how she is. She's always like this with everybody. Um, but we think she can take us wherever we want to go. I said, okay, I'll back off. But if it becomes too much, I want to be the first one to know. And, and I'm behind you 100%. And it became too much. And we acted coach was removed and another coach came in who was much better but also some of the parents uh i thought totally lost track of what was what what mattered um and the environment i thought was really all about results uh getting on the national team um being the one chosen to compete it wasn't enough to make it to the olympics had to be in the routine i mean um, it, it, it was very negative and, and I was very unhappy. Yeah, for sure. So you said you'd never go back, but you did. Why? Yeah. Because many years passed by when I didn't even watch rhythmics, even though it's a sport that I like. Um, but, uh, one of the gymnasts she, who, whom I had worked with, um, became the director of rhythmics. Hmm. And she's the one who called me and said, I want to change the culture. 
I want us to work with the coaches. I want to make sure they change the way I want us. And I said, listen, if I work with Rhythmics again, I got to work with the parents, with the coaches and with the girls. And we actually did this. We've done this. And I think there has been a big, big change. It's been, it's been actually fun. Yeah. Yeah. It's amazing how parents who love their children so much can lose their way. They can lose their way. And that, that passion for their children is to get them to be the very best. And yet, you know, what gets yeah. lost in that journey gets lost on them, doesn't it? Totally. Totally. And they think that what's important is that they arrive at a certain point that somehow it doesn't matter how you get there. And, and so getting them to work with this one coach that has, you know, some high level uh, gymnast, that's the goal. Even if that coach is uh, somebody who yells all the time, who's demeaning, who, you know, and, and so, yeah, th they lose that because they think, oh, it'll be worth it. And of course it's not. No, no, no. At what cost, right? At what cost? What would you say to parents, you know, of, of maybe young athletes, let's say, um, even older athletes, never mind, but you know, those who are, the guardians and the caregivers of these athletes, you know, what, what, how, how should they approach something like this in a situation, you know, where the, the child wants to become the best they can be? Yeah. And, and I think that that's something that has to be respected. The kid who wants to do it um, should be, but not at any cost. That is, um, they, you know, because a kid has a competition, then, you know, you, you got to take into consideration the whole family. So just because this kid had a medal today in a competition is not right then to say, well, you don't need to do this just today. Your siblings will do them. That's not right. That's a message that says the gymnast matters more than the person. And that is a huge, huge problem. And so then the kids learn that my parents are only happy with me if I do well in gymnastics. That's conditional love. It is so damaging. Yes. And so I, I try to explain that to the parents and tell them that the goal at that age is to keep them in the sport, not make them the best at age 11 or 12, is to keep them in the sport as long as they want to be there. And for that, it's got to be their, their activity. Now, I've done a lot of talks to parents, actually, a lot. And, and I, you know, and tend to coaches saying, at the beginning of the season, ask parents, what do you want your daughters, in this case, to learn in rhythmics? And at the beginning of the season, they tend to say the right things. <laughs> make a contract, make them uh, be aware of that, and then remind them throughout. You cannot just bring it on them when the competition arrives. And also help them understand the cost of changing gyms for the kids. It's very stressful for them. And so I try to talk about all these things and say, what is the experience? What is your kid learning about life and, and who she is and what matters? And I mean, there are some who probably those are not even at my session. So whatever, you know, but, uh, but in general, parents want information. And, and I got lots of calls and people asking, you know, what would be the right way? What should we do? So yeah yeah really really dealing with not just the athlete but the entire the entire system right the coach to the parents to the athlete how incredibly important that is even in the car ride home from a competition can be Absolutely. either right either damaging or exactly the right the right yeah. thing to say and do and, and i would ask what's the first question you ask when your kid comes from a competition and for many of them is did you win 
And I said, how are you as, how did you do? Did you do what you wanted to do? Did you work hard? Did you have fun? Because winning depends who else showed up. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, you can't always control the winning. So what, what do you say to people then who say, you know, um, well, aren't we just all getting soft if we just say, oh, it's okay. What, I, I feel like I know some of the things you might say, but I would love for you to address that because that seems to always come up in this conversation. Absolutely. And um, I think that pretending that, you know, the, the, the positive talking and positive thinking has actually been very poorly implemented and has done damage. And sometimes, you know, if some you see that the, the the that your kid in sport has not put in effort, that's something to say that is not acceptable. You have to put effort. You have to be on time. You have to practice. Uh, if you've made a commitment, you have to keep it for the season unless there is a health issue. Um, but emphasizing only winning. Uh, that, you know, what, what you're teaching them sometimes is pick something easy. So you look really good. Um, and, and that's a problem. And, and that's actually being soft. I'm only going to do the things where I look good. The tough thing is to go and be able to fail and continue because that's how you learn. And so um, I said, you know, it's not, if, if you look at really what matters, and, and with gymnastics, that's very easy to say. If I go to a, 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 a talk to a gymnast and she tells me, I've been doing my routines perfect, no falls all week, I'm going to say, your routines are too easy. So it's not doing it perfect. I mean, when, when you know you're being challenged, it's when things don't work. <laughs> and that's what should be valued. That's tough. Yeah. Um, it's not, you know, just um, making sure that they win. That's you cannot push people to greatness in something that is optional. Can do it, and so uh, you know those conversations are are always um, hard. And there are some people who who actually I remember talking to Dan Gould. Um, uh, sports psychologist was done a lot of work on children in sport. And, and he was doing coaches education and he got a group of uh, coaches from, I think, a, a program in the inner city in Detroit. And some of the coaches did not like his approach. They said, these kids are not going to be able to deal with the reality of the life they have in the inner city. Mm-hmm. And I don't think that that was accurate, but, um, but I understood their view. It's not that they were mean people but they thought these kids need this. I don't think that that was accurate. Actually, I think if you have internal strength, you know when you have to back off and you know when you can fight. Otherwise, you just go and fight all the time. You know, I, I really love that. It, it just drives home to me taking care of the everyday stuff and demand, it's okay to demand that or, or to expect that of even young athletes, the being on time, the putting in effort. And those things alone will lead to winning if it's meant exactly. to be. Exactly. Yeah. That's the path. And that's also the only thing that's controllable. So what are we going to put the energy in something that you can handle and do something about or something that is not something you can control? So 
Yeah, absolutely. So as we go now then from, you know, sort of that whole holistic approach, like to, you know, the coaches and the, and the parents and the, and the kids, and then you get to these big athletes in the NFL and you made, you made that transition or that jump or you were doing it at the same time. So now I need to ask, how did that come to be? Never mind, you're a female going into what is generally known as a real man's world. And of course, us females, we're always knocking on the door, you know, trying to make progress. And you certainly did that. And how did that, how did that happen for you, Gloria? Again, uh, they came, they invited me to uh, interview. Um, the reality is that the team is in Chicago. There was um, a new general manager for the team uh, who uh, wanted a group of sports sciences and brought a person with him who had worked in uh, Colorado Springs at the USOC and charged her with organizing other sports sciences. So she went back to the USOC and said, I need a sports psychologist preferably in the Chicago area. I don't want somebody parachuting there every so often only. And I know a lot of the people, the sports psychologists at the USOC, so they said, oh, call her. I have to say that when I got when I got the email, I got an email, and initially I thought, is this a joke? <laughs> I thought, all the years I've been in Chicago, and I didn't think anybody knew I existed, and all of a sudden, and, and it happened um, in kind of in a sequence that I, I got this email and then the interview and so on. And within three weeks, I got a call from the Bulls and I got uh, uh, a filler from uh, the, the Cubs. And I thought, what has happened here? They must talk to each other and all of a sudden decide that, oh, I'm here. Well, we might as well get her. So I said, like, this is crazy. But anyway, I ended up with the NFL. So you're getting all these emails and all of these inquiries and you obviously yeah. had some great connections, made great impressions with, with the whole track and field and, and, and the USOC and, and all of that. Um, why did you choose football? Like, why did you choose the Bears? Well, um, I mean, basketball also has a schedule that is very crazy and they require somebody traveling with a team. I was not willing to do that. And, uh, and, and I had already started talking to the Bears. I didn't think that, it, you know, I thought, like, let me see where this goes. And, and so I, you know, held off the other. And, and, and when I went to the Bears, it was actually a great experience because one of the things they did was my first interview was with four players. Oh. A quarterback, um, uh, an offensive line, and a couple of defensive players. And... I mean, I was really relaxed because, like I said, I thought, like, well, that's, you know, that's great. Uh, we'll see. And, uh, and so, you know, we had a, actually a great conversation. It was a lot of fun. And I know later on I found out that they put a lot of weight on what the players said, which was a very good thing. And they had brought, they brought me and two other people for interviews. Um, I think the other two were men. And the players had very specific complaints about the other, the two men. One of them annoyed the coaches to no end because started talking plays. And the other one was in awe of the players, clearly a fan. And the players said exactly that. This guy is a fan. How can we work with them? But also a lot of the, 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 the football players have an easier time relating to a female 
and they did not compete with me. Mm-hmm. And they are using their families that are run by women. Mm-hmm. So it was much easier for them to talk to me. I didn't realize it at the time, but I knew a little bit from track and field that particularly African-American athletes had an easier time talking to me than to a man. Wow. That's an incredible insight that we wouldn't necessarily, I wouldn't have thought of that at all. And, uh, and you're right. So did you know football? Like you, if, like you said, it, it doesn't work if you're just a fan of these players. I personally watch a ton of NFL. I think I would have a hard time not walking in there and like <laughs> jaw dropping going, I'm going to help you guys. So how did you, how did you manage that? Or was that not hard for you? Uh, at that point, it wasn't hard because uh, the, the physical gifts that they have, and they have amazing physical gifts. Um, I think I had seen that and been around that so much in track and field. W- one of my first trips with the national team, the track and field team, uh, we were in a world indoors in, in Scotland, I think. And I was talking to someone, it was my first trip with a team. I was talking to someone and I was standing and all of a sudden I noticed something at my eye level. So I turned around and it were the feet of an athlete. And I looked to see if he was jumping off some kind of elastic board or something. No. And I said, what are you doing? He says, I'm bouncing. It was a high jumper. I'm bouncing. And I thought, bouncing off the floor at my eye level. And, and I immediately I thought, my thought inside was, do you guys know the gifts you have? And the answer was no. Yeah. They compare with each other, everybody, you know, that's what we do. Um, and so I really learned like, okay, well, so that's, that's what it is. Yeah. And how great to be able to look past the outside and, and the physical yeah. gifts that they've been given, because that's exactly what you're there to do is look beyond that because the coaches have that figured out, right? Like you say, the coaches, They've got the plays, they've got the book, they're gonna, they're gonna deal with all of that. Now, when you walked into the, you know, did you do you have a moment or a story of when you sort of did you lead group things with all these big guys? I think we all have this this idea that, you know, all these big tough guys are maybe speak to that a little bit. You know, is that a is that a bit of a, I don't know, a generalization? We think they're all such big tough guys. Are they, are they, you know, really like just softies inside or or what? There is a, a broad range in general. They're actually a group of very smart, very caring, very caring. They would kind of, I mean, if, the days that was very, very cold, they say, you don't need to stand here and watch us, you know that? I said, you guys are out here, I'm out here, period. It's cold for you, it's cold for me. But they were kind of protective. No, you don't need to do this. They were very, um, my experience with them, actually, I continue working with some of them still now. It was was very, very good. Um, and yes, some of them are very soft uh, inside. Some of them not so much. And and for some of them, it's very important the appearance. And then on a one-to-one, they can tell that, you know, well, I need to watch my back. And it's true. They need to watch their back, particularly in the NFL. Yes. Um, so, and I, you know, I remember sometimes um, group things, I found them because of the way the NFL is, I found them dangerous. It's the only sport, football, where you can bring a new player until the last game of the season. You can bring somebody new. And so it is true that they cannot really reveal a lot in front of the others because somebody else is aiming for the spot. And, and so I was, that is something that I was very, very careful. But what I did do was were some educational sessions. And I knew more or less the topics I would ask them. Um, and so 
you know, one day I said, okay, I'm going to do um, teaching you to relax uh, with brief relaxations, not just, you know, lay in bed or whatever, but brief things you can do during the game, before the game, things like that. And I will do a variety. So whoever wants to come, and I had about 20 players who came. And so we did standing up, relaxation, we did a number of things. And at one point, I remember I had him out with their eyes closed and kind of rocking a little bit. And I, and I thought to myself, this is really funny. All these big guys rocking yeah. back and forth. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, with their eyes closed and like, okay, <laughs> pretty good. But uh, they were, you know, and sometimes they say, you know what, this meeting should be mandatory. I said, no, we don't do mandatory. I don't know mandatory meetings, but they were, I mean, not everybody, obviously, some of them not, but like I would go watch practice and it was very interesting how they would walk by and make a comment or, and once I got to know them a little bit, sometimes I would say, boy, you know, you, you looked um, like you got more energetic as the practice went on. You noticed that? Yeah. Okay, but I would also I I go to some of the team meetings for the different positions, and one of the first times one of the coaches I sat at the end, very just learning, and uh, at the end the coach when he finished came to me and said, "So, why are you here? What are you observing?" And I told the truth. I said, "I'm trying to figure out how many decisions they have to make for these kinds of plays, how much time they have, and how many variables they have to." put together to figure out if it's this play or that play or that other one. And he said, oh, okay. So, uh, I mean, it, it really, I was learning and I always ask you, is it okay if I sit in a meeting? Uh, and in general, uh, there were some did not care much for it and I respected that. Was there ever a player or players that you noticed who, you know, you watch them play and you maybe even watch them sort of self implode. I mean, you can see it. Some athletes, you just see them as the, you know, certain games go along and they need help of some kind. Uh, mm -hmm. Were there ever players that you saw that you knew needed your help, but just wouldn't come and ask for it? Yes. And I would, um, if I had a chance or I'd be on the field, I'd say <clears throat> that looked like it was a very tough day. If you want to talk about this, maybe there is some things we can do. But and in general, not all. Some came. Some some said, "Yeah, no, I know, I know, I'm dealing with it, fine." And then there was one particular player who got really mad at me for saying that. Yeah. I guess he figured if I thought he had, uh, he looked uh, like he had a tough day. That you know, other people. I'm not sure, but he got really mad. A little concerned I with what he showed on the outside, then. I think so. And I and I went back and reflected on like, okay, did I ask a question that imply, you know, yeah, you have a, a big problem? I just said today that looked like it was tough or, you know, <clears throat> and, uh, but no, I thought, no, uh, I think he just was not ready to hear anything. And, you know, it sounds so much to me like you have such a gift of waiting and, and watching and asking and, and making yourself available and truly being that person who they feel safe speaking to because one-on-one -on -one in that environment it's interesting how you talked about that group and in the nfl and what a competitive world that is and isn't that interesting in maybe a lot of workplaces and families and in regular life right we are often watching our back for different things and and sadly right we maybe feel that they're 
isn't, and, and then anxiety sets in and, oh, are we putting on a show? And, you know, we, we don't always feel we have someone to talk to, which is a real place for uh, sports psychology in sport. Uh, now, you've mentioned a few challenges that players have had in the NFL. What is, what do you think is the greatest challenge or the most common thing you had to deal with, with, with athletes that are supposed to be big and strong, they're professional, they're getting paid for what they do, and the world is watching them? One thing is, of course, um, injuries. The fear of injury, and once they have been injured, the fear of re-injury, coming back, and 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 the instability that that is part of the NFL. That I mean, people, if you're a very good player, you may be traded because you can bring money, and if you're not very good, you'll be traded because you're not very good. So no matter what, there is a, a level of instability, and and they like to talk about oh, with a family, and we're all in this together, but it's not true, frankly. Yeah, uh, and 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 uh, you know the, the they're gonna be dropped the moment it's convenient to the ownership and and I'm not saying it is not how it needs to be. Well, that's how they do it. I think it would work much better if they had a different approach, but that's you know my my perception. But uh, um, it's uh, that that creates a level of instability where where people are constantly saying I cannot make any mistakes because. Uh, my position is on the line and that generates a level of anxiety and pressure that translates into performance. And so it's, it's a vicious cycle. Yeah. That leads me to think of those that are in leadership and in power on teams or wherever, wherever in every place in life, there's someone who is the leader of the group, the leader of the pack, you know, um, whether that's a boss or a CEO or a coach or, you know, what in your dealings with the coaches, let's say, even at that level, the highest level of sport in the world, this professional mm -hmm. national football league, you know, mm -hmm. how much dealing did you have with the coaches or were you always communicating, you know, between coach player and with coaches themselves? And did you have coaches that approached you and also asked for your help? Yes, and I still have some of those. I still am in contact with some of them. Uh, again, because there are a lot of coaches there. Some of them really smart, really caring, really um, great people. Um, but many of them um, would, you know, they didn't want anybody else to know that they were coming to talk to me. The, that privacy was very important to them. Uh, and then there were some that were, I mean, part of the issues in the United States, you don't really need training to be a coach wow. and sometimes it shows yeah so uh, somebody who had played can be a coach or you know whatever um and and so sometimes that was and and i would see i don't know coaches calling players by their numbers hey you 76 come here and I feel like, come on you know we cannot do this so th there were there were many many coaches many many differences some of them i mean again coaching in general, is is uh, is a job that is stressful because you're judging what somebody else does. Mm -hmm. But also uh, the schedule of coaching, not just in the NFL. In the NFL, is extreme. Um, it's really bad for families. And those young coaches who have young families, um, are, they have to pick up and go. They're not home enough. The kids. I mean, it, it creates a level of stress. And, and many of these coaches would be really, really good dads. They really wanted to spend time with their kids and be at home when they needed to be at home. Um, and, but they put a number of hours at the office just because it depends on what the model of that place is, not necessarily because they needed to be there all those hours, frankly. 
And so that that was also something that I you know tried to to work with some of them and and help them with. Yeah. Do you have an example of of a coach or a leader, whether it was the head coach? I mean, like you say in football, there's so many coaches, yeah. but someone who you felt really really got it, like really understood or really had the buy-in of the players and, and why that was? To me, it's trust. I mean, a coach who says things to your face and if it's good, it tells you, if it's not good, it tells you, but to your face, it's a coach they trust. Um, and, and also a coach who cared about the whole person that, you know, once a, a player told me, for this coach, I'm just a pair of legs. Well, if that's the case, they're not going to put the effort, they're not going to trust, they're going to think, yeah, yeah, that's what you want. What about what I need or what I want? So, But the, there were there have been several coaches where the players knew that that coach had their back, that cared about the person they were, and and also that was honest, that would say things. There, were, there was a, another person there, another coach, who... Uh, was always trying to say what he thought the others wanted to hear. The end result was that they didn't believe him. They right. knew they couldn't trust him. And, and so he was a very um, affable, obviously easygoing, you know, very nice, but, but nobody trusted him because it, it was very easy to see. Um, and so I think trust, being honest and caring about the whole person, if you're able to do that and obviously have knowledge, but knowledge is second to trust. Absolutely, in my in my opinion. What incredible advice for any leader in any position, in any walk of life, really. Say what you mean. Uh, you know, I think when we hold back because we don't want to hurt someone, we just don't mm -hmm. tell them the whole truth. We can say okay. it in a way if we're always exactly. like that, right? We present exactly. the truth. And I mean, you don't need to shame anybody, but, but you can say this was not acceptable or this is not good. But if you stop here, that's not enough. You have to say, this is not good and you can do better and this is how. And you got to lead to the solution. And with that, you say, I know you're capable of learning, but this right now is not good enough. And so that's probably the best type of message for coaches. Well, you know, Gloria, at some point, you know, all this time in the States and with all these teams and now you're back in Spain, you know, what led to your decision to say, okay, I'm going to keep consulting and I'm never going to sort of leave this field and I will help where I can. But, you know, in some of these official roles, you know, what led to you deciding, okay, we're going to take this step. Again, they came to get me. <laughs> I said that that's um, the, the coach, um, uh, the coach. I mean, in, in general, obviously in Spain, the fact that I was in the States, that I had worked at this level um, is something that people knew. Um, and, and this coach had tried to get me to work with the national um, synchronized swimming, artistic swimming team four years ago. But I was still in the States. I said, absolutely not. You know, find someone in Spain. Mm -hmm. um, but I went and I talked to her and I really liked that coach. I thought she was, she had it right. She treated people the right way. Um, I thought she was very good. Um, and uh, when I came back to Spain, I didn't tell her I was back. I didn't say anything, but somebody else did. And so uh, last, last fall, I got a, a call from her and said, can we have coffee? <laughs> so I said, okay. <laughs> and, uh, and so we talk and, and she said, you know, as much or as little as you want, but I would like, I, I, and I said, I'll work with you. I'll work with the coach. Um, 
and I'll go and observe practice, you know, once a week or something like that, but I'll mainly work with you through you. Is that okay? And, and that's what she wanted. And that's actually what I consider the ideal situation. So I thought, and then I went on day and I thought, oh my gosh, this is so much fun. <laughs> and that was it. <laughs> and my husband said, I knew it all along. Oh, well, you know, you've shared so much with us already. Uh, we have some we have some uh, questions that we're asking each of okay. us. Um, describe a scenario when you had to think on your feet. I had um, a world record holder in track and field come and sit with me and say, I think goal setting is limiting me because I'm saying the exact distance or height, I don't want to give away the event uh, or time, but maybe I could do more. And if I set this one goal, yeah, it's a world record, but, but it's not my limit maybe. So what can I do? And I were sitting on the stands of the stadium and, and I thought, I have no idea. I have never thought of it this way. So I said that. I said, I've never thought of it this way, but I think you're right. So you put your side of the expertise, I put mine. I think we can do something here, but we got to figure it out. I don't have an answer. This is not something that you can find in any books that I know. But I thought, do I kind of give like a goal setting explanation that's going to go nowhere? Um, I couldn't do that. But so I thought like, no, but, but I think he's, I can see his thinking on that and it kind of makes sense. But I have to say something that is what I believe. I couldn't just, you know, come up with. Uh, and 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 at other times, the other time in a very different way, I had gotten with the whole team to Japan for the world championships. Uh, we were at a camp, so to speak, beautiful place, but the TV was in Japanese. Uh, there was, you know, there was very little to do. People were getting antsy. And all of a sudden, they brought a movie in English. So we were all sitting there watching uh, a murder mystery kind of movie. And all of a sudden, and again, many of them really didn't know me. They knew who I was, but that was it. And all of a sudden, you know, we're watching on the screen, you know, this guy is hiding. And now you see the shoes of the bad guy who's climbing. And a couple of the athletes turned to me and say, sports psych, what's he thinking? <laughs> And of course, I said, he's thinking, oh, shit. <laughs> and they, because, I mean, I, you know, it was really, I thought that's what he's thinking. Uh, <laughs> and they started laughing and I said, you're okay. One of them came to see me the next day. They test, are you for real? And, and, and that's sometimes on the spur of the moment. I mean, I'm sure at times I've said something inappropriate, so whatever. <laughs> <laughs> but definitely thinking on your feet. Gloria, yeah. where is your happy place if you have one? I think it's the beach. Oh, watch the waves, be there. Uh, no, it's, it doesn't even have to be hot as long as it's sunny. How do you define success? Using everything you have. I think that's success. I think that when you know, you know, sometimes you don't have something but you've rallied and used everything else you had, I think that's success. And it's something I really try to convey. Love that. Tell me about a time where you felt underqualified. 
I mean, there have been a number of times where I thought I don't, I don't have the answer, but I didn't think it was an answer that was that somebody else would have that answer. Uh, except um, sometimes, like for example, I had a, a professional golfer refer to me and he came to talk to me, and I thought he needs somebody who knows a lot more about golf than I do at his level. If he were a regular, you know, golfer, whatever, um, but this guy is a pro. And I thought, I don't know enough about this. And, and I think I would not only wouldn't be helpful, I may miss something that I shouldn't miss. Uh, and it was sport specific. Um, in, in other situations, more than anything, is, is this a situation that is new, that is like, okay, so what are we going to do? I had an athlete uh, come talk to me before the final at the Olympics and say, she had a lot of pain and said, can you help me manage that pain? I thought I can, but should I? Is it a pain that says discomfort or is it a pain that says stop? And so here I felt like, okay, um, I need to, to do some medical opinion about your pain and what would happen if we push. And she had already done that, but I wanted so I'm convincing that, and because I wasn't sure, and and I thought, yeah, I, it's not that I was underqualified; is that it, it was a situation that was too much at risk, and I and I knew that that was a very competitive athlete who wanted to push, mm-hmm. and uh, and I thought, wait, 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 let's hold back. Tell me about a time, or was there a time where you ever felt undervalued? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, sometimes. I remember one that hurt my feelings very much. Mm-hmm. But as I got older, I think maybe it wasn't exactly undervalued. It's just that that's what it is. Uh, I went to uh, the Olympics in 92. Uh, you know, they have the day of the U.S. And so everybody went and all track and field went to get their uh, picture taken. And I, they asked everybody to be in uniform, Okay. And when I got there, they gave me cameras and said, can you take our picture? And I'm like, oh, but it's, it's actually, it's, it's true. I'm inside, but I'm outside. And it has to be. And also at the same time, they trusted me. Gloria, you're here. Good. Could you take our picture? Um, but at that time, it hurt my ego. It hurt my feelings. And and I and then I thought, yeah, but but it's right. What an what a great attitude to that. How do you have conversations with people who have more power than you? That doesn't usually uh, intimidate me much. Uh, and um, uh, there are a number of, of situations where they they may have more power, not necessarily more knowledge. And so um, and and many times in some instances. I've gone to some situations aware that one of the possible outcomes may be that I'll be fired. And I have to be okay with that. If I'm okay with that, then I can talk. Right. And see whatever needs to be said. Um, if I if I need, and, and in a sense, again, it's been luck because I, I have been able to do that. Uh, sometimes you're in a phase of life where you cannot afford to lose the job and then you have to treat that situation differently. So... Um, I, again, I've, I've had a lot of luck that I've been able to, to do that. 
uh, and say, you know, what I needed to say and say, listen, you may not like this, but I think this needs to be on the table and that's what's happening or whatever. Yeah. Wow. Uh, Confidence plays a big part in that, I think. Hey, knowing, like you said, like they might have more power, but they don't have necessarily have more knowledge. And that's why you are in a lot of cases going to speak with them. And, and I think that, again, my clinical training has been very helpful for that. Right. And I use those skills a lot. Absolutely. So it seems as though mental health is about things that we cannot see. Uh, when do you see it? How does it present itself to you? I, I actually think you see it and you feel it from the other person. And, and, and the level of, if I talk to someone and I live with a, with a heavy feeling in my gut and it wasn't there before the conversation, I have to think, wait, is this mine? Or I just picked it up. And if I just picked it up, there is something here that is not good. And, and when you see people in a pattern of consistently struggling and unhappy, um, you see, you see that it, I think it's for me, it's always both. I see it and I feel it. And, and I trust that very much. Um, the same way that I can see someone who looks so tightly warm that I think this person is going to and, and sometimes has happened with one a football player who had a panic attack um, at the beginning of a practice. And I had to take him away. And um, and I had been watching him. I didn't know what was wrong because it, it was hard to read, except it was always like, like a pressure cooker. And, uh, and that's how it, it broke. So, um, and, and I thought, okay, I knew there was something. So I kept an eye, but I didn't know what, but you see it, you know? Yeah, absolutely. What, in your opinion, is the biggest change in people post-pandemic? Fear. Uh, I think people are afraid of so many other things now. And, and I, 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 I don't know, a little naively, I guess, I, I thought we were actually going to make a change as a society. And I don't think it's gone that way of taking care of each other. Um, I think people want to take care of themselves and are afraid of the others sometimes, are afraid of so many more things that somehow it's made us a little bit more isolated from one another. And, and I was hoping it would go the other way, but it hasn't. I, I think. Uh, what do people want from their jobs right now? I think they want to be a part of a community and have some meaning, make sense. Why am I doing this? Um, who are these people? They should matter and, and I should matter to them. And, and I think if, if jobs paid attention to that, the people felt you matter to us, you're valued, whoever you are and, and whatever you do, you matter, you're part of it. And, and, and we as a group uh, are all together in this. I think it would work much better for everybody, frankly. Yeah. That applies to teams and to jobs. All yeah. right. So to end, who are two or three people who influenced you and how did they impact your life? I think in sports psych, um, I don't think he knew how much influenced me, but Ken Revisa. Hmm. Ken had a, a, a heart and a humanity and a warmth um, and, and the ability to show his weakness that 
I absolutely, I mean, I keep thinking about him and what he was, I have a picture of him actually here in my house. Um, um, and, uh, and, uh, and he, and, and he also, um, you know, you mentioned it briefly at one moment as a, as a response to what I'd said, in, there is a lot of watching, a lot of, uh, you know, uh, Ken was one of the first ones who said, you don't know how hard it is to stand there and do nothing. But that's what you have to do a lot of the time. If you try to do too much, you interfere. And I, boy, did I understand that and I've, I've learned it. So uh, he was one of them. The other one was uh, uh, somebody much uh, um, before, Dorothy Harris. And she helped me navigate uh, the International Society and, uh, and uh, you know, fight for, for you know, having your voice be heard as a female, she was relentless and tough and, and at the same time, warm and great. I loved her. Um, and then there was one person in Spain who was the director of the, what became the College of Physical Education. Physical education, when I uh, was going to the university, was not a college degree here, but he made it. Uh, he got it to be a, a college degree. He was a uh, a philosopher, really, and he was um, he was kind of my mentor in Spain. And once uh, at the World Congress in Sports Psychology that was held in Prague, um, he had to give a keynote, and uh, was called. They, they were talking about making him Minister of Sports in Spain. It didn't happen because he wouldn't compromise. But they called him to Madrid, and so he came to look for me and said, "Here, you're going to give my keynote." <laughs> like, what? But he did, and and he pushed me into a, you know everybody was like who is she? Uh, so they put me in a number of international groups and things just because they associated me with him. And uh, but he was an, an amazing man. Jose Maria Cajigal was his name. Wow, Gloria, I have one more. I, I'm just because I would like to know even just you know as we as as the world opens up again and as we sort of get back into things and and like we've talked about you know the pandemic isolated us and now we're struggling to find our way back I think and as leaders what would you what would advice would you give in having observed so many teams and so many coaches leading these teams and just environments like that which are really exactly parallel to the environments that we live in. What advice would you give those who who are leading the way and what do you hope um you know will be passed on to those that are following those leaders or, or how can we how can they empower all of us to sort of come together i know sometimes it is very overused but i think that word of empowering others i mean sometimes leaders think that they should uh make all decisions that that's what leading is mm -hmm. and when you do that the message that you give, even if that's not what you mean, the message that you give is, I need to make the decisions because I'm better than you are. And, and that's horrible. And so, but when you empower people and, and, and give them the opportunity to, and, and, and teach them, and, and you know, don't throw them to the wolves, just uh, allow them to start making decisions progressively, involve them, uh, that is saying, what you think matters and you're capable of doing this. Um, and, and that conveys respect and that conveys trust. And, but it's, it's really empowering them and, and not just saying it, but really allowing them to participate and listen to their, to their, to their opinions. 
Yeah. I, I think that would be central. Gloria, thank you for this time. I'm inspired and I just feel like you, you can never stop doing what you're doing. <laughs> you're not allowed <laughs> to retire, not fully. I didn't realize that. <laughs> There are always people who will be asking you to come. It seems that all along your path, well, they asked me to come and they asked me. Yeah. And there's there's a reason for it. And I think those of us who have heard you today, we know why. We know why you make us feel like we are heard. And I think that's so key. And thank you for helping us with sharing about performance. And, and so many of us are concerned with top performance, but, but the wellness of us in trying to reach the best that we can absolutely possibly be. And we can't do that without all of this being well. And uh, we just thank you for that. Thank you. It's been a lot of fun. I always love talking to you. That's Gloria Beleg, sports psychologist, yes, but what a resource of wisdom from the inside out. And that's what matters anyway, isn't it? Gloria, thank you for your strong voice. Thank you for your work in a field that you helped to shape in your journey. Thank you for helping us get even closer at understanding how important our mental health is to performance. You have performed well, and we have benefited from that today. I'm Michelle Sawatsky-Coop. Thank you to Pinnacle for sponsoring today's episode of Mental Health for Performance. We'll talk to you again soon.